You're listening to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lubiton. This week on the show, my conversation with a Grammy-winning American songster who has made it his mission to reclaim and rejuvenate the lost acoustic music of the past and bring it whistling brightly into the future, Dom Flemons. Born in Phoenix, Arizona to parents of African-American and Mexican heritage, the ever-curious young Dominique went from playing drums in his high school band and busking on the streets of Flagstaff with his finger-picked guitar and neck-rack harmonica to taking a chance that would change his life completely. He scrounged enough money to make it to the Black Banjo Gathering in North Carolina, and that's where he would meet Rhiannon Giddens and Justin Robinson and begin a seven-year run with their groundbreaking African-American string band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. They would go on to win the Grammy for traditional folk album, headline festivals and theaters around the world, open for Bob Dylan, play the Grand Ole Opry, and burst into the consciousness of young acoustic music hopefuls like me, who were tired of the same stoic hillbilly bluegrass and whitewashed old-time songs played over and over again around the festival campfire. These guys did it differently. And I'm not going to lie, I wore out those Chocolate Drops albums, and I could hardly believe it when I saw Dom and Rhiannon playing those front porch songs that would have felt right at home in a humid North Carolina morning in 1910 in a packed rock club in the heart of Hollywood like it was no big deal. But it was a big deal. These were young African-American musicians reclaiming a lost music on a national stage. Sure, I could sound like I'm waxing nostalgic, but in that near-distant past of the mid-2000s, the most cutting-edge music on the planet wasn't on the pop or rock charts. It wasn't played with synthesizers or amplifiers or laptops with trap files. It was played with instruments made out of wood and steel and flesh and blood. Fiddles and banjos and guitars and bones and spoons and harmonicas and washboards and jugs and the original primordial secret weapon, the human voice. And it was that moment, watching Dom play that banjo, when I knew the future of acoustic music was in good hands. For the last seven years, Dom has forged his own unique solo career, becoming a roving musical curator who was equal parts affable singer-songwriter, storyteller, and much-respected folk historian who was often consulted by news outlets to try and make sense of the topsy-turvy world of music and race relations. His latest trick, the concept album Black Cowboys, which was nominated for a Grammy recently and aims to tell the true story of how the West was really won. I'm sure glad Dom galloped into my living room here in California recently to share his stories and insights. I think the dude should do a TED Talk, just saying. So, without further ado, Dom Flemons. guitar you got there this is a Ferlini guitar from Todd Cambio out in Madison Wisconsin yeah, yeah great uh, great builder he was um, good he's, he's good friends with Alvin Youngblood Hart and when Alvin was making the replica lead belly 12 string Stellas Todd was learning to do the ladder brace guitars as well when you get <laughs> you know you get the you can't see it right now folks but he's holding the guitar straight up in the air like who did that first? Woody Guthrie, or was it before that? Woody Guthrie, and uh, I mean, everybody from Pete Seeger to Bob Dylan, you know, you get the... Go away from my window Leave at your own chosen speed <laughs> I'm not one you won't be if you, if you could have fit into that little Greenwich Village world, do you think... You would have risen up in that world when when folk music was the pop music of its day. It's really tough to say because there were early African American folk musicians out there. Like the, probably the most famous are like Josh White or his son Josh White Jr., Lynn Chandler. Uh, then there's like a, a, a Puerto Rican singer who was part of the Club Forty Seven, Jackie Washington. He was part of it. Taj Mahal is part of that scene, even though he went to rock later. Uh, I I feel like I might have done okay. I I, I uh, was more connected to the what they called the neo-ethnics or the city billies at that time. People like Dave Van Ronk and yeah. Spider John Kerner and mm-hmm. 
And to me, I, I really liked the the position they took on uh, interpreting traditional folk music. And then, of course, people like Bob Dylan and Tom Paxton and those people came along and became the first singer-songwriters. But I like that sort of primordial ooze of uh, Eric Von Schmidt, who uh, mm-hmm. Dylan uh, name-checks in uh, <laughs> a Baby Let Me Follow You Down. And so it, I think I could, have, I could have fit in there a little bit. And I've gotten to meet several of those people uh, as I've gone along. I got to see Dave Van Ronk when I was around 18. Mm. And, um, the Kingston Trio were based out of Phoenix. And so there were a lot of LPs of the Kingston Trio around, even though I didn't know they were connected to um, where I grew up. You know, just there was folk music in the local community. So you're from Phoenix. You're from Arizona. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh you kind of started busking around Flagstaff, right? Where you That's went right. to college. Mm-hmm. I think busking is like a good education for any musician, you know? Yeah. It's like you have to kind of be able to project and uh, have the the rejection of people walking by you. It's almost like a stand-up routine, you know? Yeah, You're yeah like, sure. It hardens you, yeah, but yeah. also like encourages you because people who would never see you will gather around maybe you yeah. know well you've touched upon something i tell people all the time that busking one of the things that it educates you on is the idea that the audience doesn't have to listen to you and mm-hmm. when you translate into gigs later you know like say you get into a well a hard gig when not as many people are there as you'd like when you've busked, you are playing for just the open air. So if someone stops, it's because you did something that at least inspired them. It's, and the idea of quality and, and attractiveness or of um, musical integrity is open to the beholder of whoever stops by. So it really gives you a randomness of your audience. And I, I've always in, I thought that was great in performance art. You know, it's a <laughs> beautiful thing. What did you grow up listening to? What do you remember hearing first as a kid? Well, my my parents, uh, they would uh, take uh, road trips, both of them individually with their families to Las Vegas. And my dad, uh, he would go to the black section of Vegas. And he he told me once he got to see uh, um, the floor show with James Brown in 1963 when Ooh. he was like 16 or 17. But he was there visiting his cousins and his uncles and aunts from Arkansas who had moved to Las Vegas. Other side of my family, my mom's side, they would take trips to Palm Springs and, and stuff like that. And they'd go see like the Mills Brothers. Mm. Or my mom told me she saw the Motortown Review, which was Motown's Marvin Gaye, the Supremes, mm. Gladys Knight and all of them in the floor show version mm. of those. So they were interested in R&B. But by the time I was growing up, they were listening to, you know, the normal uh, smooth jazz and R&B that was just <laughs> on the radio, yeah. you know, and that and. My dad had a, a big love of country music. He loved like Charlie Daniels and uh, mm. Buck Owens and the Bakersfield sound, you know, because he grew up with that. I love the Mills Brothers. It was like one of those things where my dad had like Paper Doll mm-hmm. in those records. Yeah, 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 sure. And I was always like, man, this is cheesy. Like, why would anyone like this? Yeah. And then later on, I would like kind of sneak the CD and put it into my six CD changer, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Paper Dolly yeah. to go and, and so from yeah. doo-wop and uh, also Cool 94.5 was always playing a lot of great 60s and 50s music uh, when I was growing up. So I got into early rock and roll very quickly. Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Carl Perkins, Elvis, and that led me to Dylan, Hendrix, you know. And I just kind of went down that rabbit hole all the way through high school into college, you know, 13-floor elevators and getting into the real deep, crazy, weird type of 60s and 70s rock and then... Singer-songwriters like Cat Stevens, Leonard Cohen. And I learned all the songs as I was going along. So I got into that. And then I got deep into folk music and then field recordings and then into the 78 era of the 20s and 30s. So it was kind of an evolution right. in about four parts. I think the uh, the history of music is is we take for granted that it's sort of desegregated. You know, mm-hmm. black artists and white artists and people from all over the world sort of on the pop sort of charts or even just, you know, in classic rock, you would listen to James Brown and, and Tina Turner at the same time you'd listen to Cat Stevens and, and you know, that's Korean's right. Clearwater Revival. But that's not how it sort of started out. You know, and I was listening to a talk that you gave about how in the 20s, the labels would basically segregate the music to basically race records and hillbilly music. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little more about that and how sort of that the echoes of that are still around today? Well, I'll make you laugh with it in one way because what ended up happening was as they established the industry, they were trying to find ways to hyper-focus in on certain audiences that would buy 
a record that appealed to them, whether it was nostalgic or whether it was a novelty. Because you got to think of records as a plastic thing you buy. But then the music can mean something to you, and that's something they found out really early on. Like Thomas Edison, when he created the, the, um, the gra graphophone, uh, that was made for stenography. He made like for a you know like a PDA. You know that yeah. was that was what Thomas Edison made it for. Didn't think about it as entertainment. But then that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, another guy, Emil Berliner from England, he did he invented the flat recording compared to the cylinder recording. And mm. then he thought, oh, you could do music and entertainment, comedy, monologues, whatever it was, and start selling that. And that built an industry around that. So as they went, they were shooting in the dark, kind of like. Now we have social media where you push a button and you can reach a million people with just saying, you know, like, hi, how are you doing? It goes out there. Yeah. And we have to think of the technology being as such that you had the entire industry had just one button or they had three buttons for recordings. So, you know, RCA Victor or Columbia or um, uh, uh, Aeolian, which later became Vocalion and Paramount Records, they all were... They had their one button they would do. So they'd get a trend, boom, let's go for it. And so with uh, Southern working class black music, when Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues was recorded, part of the story is that the songwriter Perry Bradford, who is an African-American composer, Tin Pan Alley, along with W.C. Handy and Clarence Williams, he was pitching a black woman singing in front of a black jazz band that was doing improv improvised mm. composition. So he was selling an idea, hmm. and they even put ads in the Chicago Defender saying, hey, the recording industry is really putting it out here for, for black folks because they didn't think black people would buy records, which, of course, we would think is completely ridiculous now. Why wouldn't we buy records for entertainment? Why did they think that? Because there was no... There was no data to show that there yeah. was anybody that had money to do it. Yeah. But then when the Crazy Blues came out, and then it sold a, a million records over, I think, the first month. And mind you, this is also during the suffragette movement in 1920. This is like months away mm -hmm. from this. So this song, The Crazy Blues, has this very big symbolic meaning on top of the entertainment value. How's that song going again? Uh, it, well, it, has, <laughs> it says, I got the crazy blues. One of the, the harshest lines is that I'm I'm going to... I'm gonna, Get, go find me a Chinaman and get myself some hops. I'm going to go down the street and shoot myself a cop. I ain't had nothing Damn. but bad news, but now I got the crazy blues. I mean, it's a, it's almost like its own version of gangster rap in its yeah. way. But as a reaction, they created a category for black Southern working class people because that was also what Perry Bradford was hedging his bets on, was that the people in the South wanted to hear their own people singing their own songs. Mm. So they made race records. Mm. And that's a, a riff off of uh, Booker T. Washington and uplifting the race. And he was the Moses of the race. This was a, so it was a term that was for dignified African-American people in a way. And so blues and jazz, spiritual gospel became that. And then directly after it, the same A&R man who created that term, Ralph Peer, created another category for white Southern working class people called hillbilly music, which is went on the same idea that there was a marginalized community that wanted to hear the old square dances, the old fiddle tunes, the parlor songs, the 1890s sentimental ballad songs about the Civil War, anything that was nostalgic for that uh, audience. And up to this day, we still contend with how they'd set those categories into place because then we have black and white music and the nature of the social. Uh, backdrop of segregation and all of those things, of course, there are reactions that reverberate from it beside just entertaining songs. And that's why in the 50s, then you have to get your black records under the under the counter or the early doo-wop groups have covers that feature flowers or a lot of the names were bird names and so they have pictures of birds. So you didn't have to see the music. You could hear it and love it, but you didn't have to see it. I, I talked with Bobby Rush, the blues, uh -huh. blues yes. you know, guy that... Uh, our fellow wonderful music manager Jeff Delia uh, brought over to my house. You know, eighty-five-year-old you know touring blues guy has been doing it sixty-five straight years on the road. He told this story about playing in the suburbs of Chicago behind a curtain, mm -hmm. right? And him and and Muddy Waters and various people would kind of sub in and out of this gig where genteel patrons of the suburbs would want to hear this black blues music, but just not see who was playing it. But they liked him so much that they would allow the curtain to be opened a bit at the end, you know? And it's – this is not that long ago, right? right? I mean this is like in my parents' childhood, you know? That's it's right. like something happened where white audiences 
wanted this rhythm and this music, but couldn't bear the thought of seeing who was playing it. Like that's it's so inconceivable now, but that was fifty years ago. Absolutely. Know? Well, that was one of the key moments of the nineteen sixties, seventies, and moving forward was that as integration became acceptable, a tolerance was built where people could see each other in a real way. Before then, it was so separate that the implication that you could be connected to this part of the community or that part of the community would really damage your reputation on in the whole town, especially when you think of rural communities where there aren't that many people and everybody knows each other. If some sort of interesting scandal or story comes up everybody knows about it so this is it's a very different world than we are in now which again that to me is is very reassuring to see that we can look back on it and see how much we have evolved since those days because now it's inconceivable like what why would you have uh, a black bathroom and a white bathroom but you know when they set it up it was because of economic and social reasons. And around 1900, they really set those laws into place, separate but equal. But then the 1960s is all about them fighting for economic independence and stability up and uplift. But it, the music is like this backdrop that even if you play a James Brown record, I'm black and I'm proud, you've changed all of black culture because when it goes on all of the radio stations in every black community, to say I'm black and I'm proud out loud was a huge revelation to people. And again, we can't re we try to wrap our minds around it now, but we see so many messages and we see so many big statements said all the time, like big advertising signs all day that we kind of get numb to it. But back then, to say like I'm black and I'm proud and to wear your hair natural was just walking down the street. You've changed everybody you've seen all day long. Yeah, and, and I keep thinking in terms of like, evolution right like mm. creatures evolve you know usually very slowly over eons uh -huh. right but like humans have like accelerated to the point of almost ridiculousness mm -hmm. where 200 years ago we were plowing the fields with oxen yeah. and now we have robots doing it you know type thing and and yeah. now we have the ability to realize our own uh, bias mm -hmm. and, and try to correct it but it it's a rocky road to get there, you know? And, and honestly, you as an African-American singer-songwriter, you're not really among a huge group of people doing what you're doing, preserving but also evolving folk and roots music, right? Absolutely. Well, I'm part of a very unique generation I found now because I did not really get into having an email or a cell phone until I was about 22 or 23, till after I got into college when I started to do music as a profession. So up to that point, I've been, I, I came of age without really using uh, like social media or I had like a a, a PC, but at that time, you know, yeah. you, you have to leave a PC at home. That was yeah. like a thing you had at your house that you yeah. used. And then you could maybe, like for me, I stored music on early iTunes and things like that. And I collected my music that way. So all of the music I collected, I took time. I immersed myself in it. I got to think about what it was about. I got to really revisit it, reanalyze it, and look at it, to it in a lot of different perspectives. And a lot of people now, since you have so much information coming at you, that there's not a lot of time to have those moments. Because sometimes it takes 10 years, you know? Like uh, when I was in college and studying Shakespeare, they always said that. They said all of the major plays, like King Lear or um, uh, Othello or... Um, uh, Hamlet, you're supposed to visit the revisit every ten years because every ten years you're going to have a very different perspective based on your your life experiences. Mm. Like King Lear, uh, they say when you're younger, usually um, you usually feel bad for Ophelia, the mm. character, because she has a tragic ending. All of them do, but you, then by the time they say maybe you're in your fifties, you uh, sympathize with King Lear more because of how much he's lost as a a well-respected mm. man in his community, and then he loses everything and then goes crazy. I mean, that's a different perspective you have as someone who. Uh, has had children, had the success, and then lost it all. Mm. And and then you have to deal with what do you do now? And so that's what they t teach you in um, you know in, in classic literature classes. So I've I always treated folk music like that. I always treated it as serious literature. So when I do my music, what I'm saying and what I'm doing, and then what I'm implying musically is always very 
clear-cut to me, but I try to make it not so clear-cut to the audience so that they can enjoy it without having to... They don't have to go into my head with it. Well, partially, you know, what <laughs> drew me to folk music uh, early on was its accessibility. You yeah. know, like a person who just started learning guitar could play the three chords in Home on the Range. That's right. You know, That's and right. it felt really good to sing it. And yeah. you're like, I'm part of this... Tradition, I can get some people together and we can sing these songs together, you know? Yeah. And the more you listen to songs that you put on the Black Cowboys record, these songs have been around for eons where, you know, a white kid growing up in the suburbs like me knows these songs the same as other people who, you know, are totally in a different environment. And I remember, yeah, Home on the Range being on like this Disney cassette tape. Yeah. That my mom had of like folk songs, mm-hmm. you know, Jimmy Crack Corn and I Don't Care. Yeah, and, yeah. But it was like Itsy Bitsy Spider and all these different things. But like, I remember singing that song, mm-hmm. but the lyrics that you have on the recording, never heard those lyrics. And I think that's kind of fun where the lyrics of a song also evolve over time, mm-hmm. you know? Tell me about, you know, how you started going back to find the origins of these songs. Because I know you found that Alan Lomax, you know, would discover these tunes coming from certain people. And then they said, no, I got it from this guy who used to work on my dad's, you know, farm. The, you know, the Black Field Hands were the ones who had the songs first, in a way. You know? Absolutely. Well, with with the, the Black Cowboys project, one of the things that was amazing was first, I, I was, you know, big fan of cowboy music in a general sense. Both the commercial recordings, like Marty Robbins and stuff, and also the field recordings, because I got really deep into the Library of Congress recordings of uh, John Lomax and Alan Lomax. And there was also a, a CD that came out several years back called Black Texicans from the Deep River Song Collection mm. from the Alan Lomax Collection. And the liner notes in there really frame uh, a conversation where Alan Lomax is talking about he and his father's work and seeing black cowboys and that their field recordings are truly one of the only pieces of audio evidence we have of the rich black cowboy tradition. So, of course, that album was a, a, a big cornerstone for me. Um, another company, New World Records, did an album called Back in the Saddle, which was a two LP of um, the history of cowboy music. So kind of uh, juxtaposing all those along with the Marty Robbins records, I wanted to figure out how to show African-American music in a context where it was both referencing the historical music, the written documentation about the music, as well as the descendants and the living tradition, like people like Lightning Hopkins and Mance Lipscomb and uh, Leadbelly, Henry Thomas, all these people uh, that are part of this um, uh, black cowboy, uh, East Texas blues songster tradition. Um, There's material about them being cowboys and ranchers, and I wanted to put that into the context of cowboy music because I felt that that was was a a compelling story that would tell a lot about African-American evolution. Because we were thinking, with black cowboys, you have to think of people born to slavery, then being emancipated, and then what did they do after that? And part of it was, it was moving out west and creating new lives where they were ranchers out west. So that, that you have a variety of people coming out, different reasons, different causes, different uh, economic backgrounds as well, because sometimes uh, there were religious groups that moved out west and they created new communities and I just found that there was quite a variety. So musically, you take a song like Home on the Range and you go back to the source material. First, uh, I wanted to get uh, John Lomax's cylinder recording that he did of the Black Cook in San Antonio that he said he got this variant. But it turned out when I went to the Library of Congress, this cylinder had already crumbled into dust. Mm. And they di- it didn't exist. But John Lomax had the, the music from the cylinder recording transcribed by a school teacher. Mm. And that sheet music became Tex Ritter's version, which mm. led to be the Western national anthem we know it now. So it's quite a few steps to get to the root of the matter. But once you find that the source is a black cowboy, that, it, that tells a very powerful story of folklore as well as the translation of folk music into popular culture. And There's that line in your version about swans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like I do not remember that being on my Disney cassette version. Yeah, well, over time, you know, it, this over time, cowboy. 
I describe it to people this way, because being from the West, this is something I just already knew, but now now describing it to people, there's two West. There's the physical West, like the folk music of the West, and then there's the West of the imagination, mm-hmm. which is the, the books and the ephemera, the, the movies and everything that are, is Western culture. This is based around Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in the 1890s, which was the first time people were exposed to cowboys and Indians in the, the classic cowboy uh, sense that we think of it now. And that's just the way that the popular culture evolved out of that. And so a song like Home on the Range, it had these original lyrics and the original poem written about it. And so I went back to the source, found the poem, and then the melody uh, came from the one of the very first recordings of Home on the Range from Jules Verne Allen, who was hmm. the first singing cowboy. He was um, actually the, the state folkloric singer of New Mexico in the Mm. early 1920s. And he was a a vaudeville performer that then really embraced cowboy music. So he has this, has this different melody. And I just heard his recording and I said, that, that melody is different than the one that I've heard. Everyone else. Can you demonstrate the differences between the two melodies or the Um, the two versions? Yeah. And, uh, so most times when you hear, you hear, oh, give me a home where the buffalo, uh, where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play, and so something yeah. along those lines. And so the version that Jules, uh, Jules Allen sang was, oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word. And the skies are not cloudy all day. It has a little more of a swing to it. Yeah, it has like this interesting like swing. And so, and and for him, he did home, home on the range. And so I did that. Yeah. I took that melody, but I knew that no one would want to hear the song if it didn't have home, home on the range. So I, yeah. I, I put that part back into yeah. the arrangement. So that was like very subtle things that I decided to do. Because of course, home on the range is a song that everybody, their brother, their cousin, and then their, their gra- the grandson of that cousin has recorded home on the range. So I wanted to try to figure out how could I make it compelling while still being very true to the the root of the song as well as the words because it, they are very powerful words and that uh, the the verse about the um, about the the um, the uh, the Native Americans being removed from the land mm. but it's 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 both a statement of the fact that it happened mm. and it's also a statement of nostalgia and sentimentality to say I wish they would return mm. but. That's part of the West as well. That's that. There's this nostalgia for the past always in the West and all of the Western ephemera, but it's it's uh, it runs directly in conflict to what actually happened, and it's it's a it's a strange another another strange facet of American uh, popular culture. Well, there's a lot of uh, danger to like sort of giving into nostalgia as its own sort of beast, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. you know I always joke with my. 93-year-old grandma, you know, where she's like, you know, we didn't have to do that back then. Like, we could just get together and we didn't have to call each other. We would just show up and everyone would have a meal and blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, and your mother died in childbirth, you know? I mean, I didn't say that, but, like, in my mind, I'm like, on one hand, things were easier or, like, more connected and more simple in a way, but also, like, horrible injustice and death and sickness and there's like our grandparents didn't have penicillin yeah you know it's yeah. like you got pneumonia and you were dead yeah like my grandmother's father you know it's like Absolutely. that was it you know yeah and also the racial disparity and the uh insane gaps you know in wealth which i think we're seeing return a bit you know sure. we're in another almost gilded age right now you know? yeah it's it's really bizarre in a way and that's one of the things i find most interesting because since i've spent a lot of time studying the music of the 1880s and 1890s i realized quickly and very early on why they don't teach this in elementary school like reconstruction and all right. that because it is really a horrific part of history but it's very nuanced at the same time it wasn't just a crack down on everything like in one swoop but it was a it was a rebirth in one way after the civil war but then it was this also this disparaging uh wilting of what 
people wanted and desired from from American society. And then in 1900, they just cracked down and just said, "We're splitting it all up again." And uh, and that that was it's it's a pretty horrific time. But that was also why I wanted to figure out a way musically to show how the songs told the story that was in the background. Because again, we think of the folk cowboy as being a part of a working class environment that is removed from the Gilded Age in a certain way. But it's not fully removed because this is also an era in which you could be country and urban in the course of five minutes by just changing the clothes you wore, jumping on a train and going into the city. So it's, it's also people transitioning away from being from their home communities growing into a national and even international in a way because people still could jump on a boat from New York and go to London and go to Europe. That's what people like Jack Johnson did. And he was such a bombastic character that look that guy up and you'll see a very interesting story of a black man who chose to not stay within the status quo in any way. And he uh, became successful, but he also, his downfall came from that hubris and uh yeah it was a really weird world but the cowboys and their music create a space in american society that where people can really uh, see the beauty in the united states because the it's all about the land it's about the it's about the beauty of the landscapes even with all of the disparity that came with uh with all of the different settlements of the land uh, the idea of the West is something that, in the mind, is such a strong, clear picture, and that's that's inspired people for, uh, I mean, decades and decades. Well, you would have Broadway sort of retrospectives or, or shows with Gene Autry doing cowboy rope trips, that's right. tricks. You know, uh, that was like a thing that was, sure. you know, part of the public uh, imagination, sure. and you would have these stories told. But I feel like. There's always something erased a bit, partially that one in four of the cowboys that settled the West were African Americans. Like we we never thought that. You know, sure. you're never you never see that in, in sort of the storybook version of the United States. Well, I think we're in a unique point here in the twenty first century to start correcting those things and acknowledging them. Because I think before I don't think people really understood why it would have been important to put a lot of reverence in a thing like black cowboys but you know once you start looking into the the whole community in which black cowboys represent then you start finding a, you finding something completely new it, when, when it came to uh, western music you know after the buffalo bill wild west show one of the the first arbiters of western music ended up being jimmy rogers mm. and uh, jimmy rogers had western songs within his repertoire and that created a space for hillbilly to include western which again was turned into country and western after the second world war so you know, Gene Autry was a, a Jimmy Rogers impersonator. He was a follower of Jimmy Rogers' music, did records that sounded just like Jimmy Rogers. And then when he uh, met with, uh, I think it was Don Law, the A&R man, or it was Art Satherly, one of the early A&R guys, they helped him craft the singing cowboy image that would fit for radio as well as television. And so then he created this empire in which the singing cowboy had a certain look to it, but it was all based on Buffalo Bill and and those sort of uh, theatrical tropes. So we've just been locked in that pattern for, for ages. Like, I love Gene Autry's music. I think it's amazing. But then you start to see where people like Herb Jeffries come into it. And he's a guy that was out of Los Angeles. He um, he sang with, actually, with um, uh, Duke Ellington for years. He was a hmm. jazz singer. But then he was up in Harlem, and he saw, the story goes, he saw these, these kids playing out by the theater, and... You know, there was a little black boy and I think two white boys, and they were playing cowboys and Indians. And one of them wanted to be uh, the black boy wanted to be a cowboy instead of an Indian. And the boy said, "Well, there were no black cowboys, so you you know you can't you can't be a cowboy." And so Herb Jeffries said, "You know, I know that there were black cowboys because that was in his family." And so he went out of his way to make a character called the Browns Buckaroo mm. and made uh, I think four movies as the Browns Buckaroo, mm. and they were Gene Autry but a sepia toned 
all-black uh, cast of movies set in a cowboy setting. And um, they were made for the all-black theaters because, of course, uh, theaters were segregated at that time. So he made it for a black audience to so they could see Western culture in their, their popular culture because they... It, it's funny to think of it now, but it, it you know uh, still to this day, if people don't see it on TV, they can't they they really can't believe it for sure. Just because something about TV or your media elevates uh, any subject, just in the mind, you know, because you say, "Wow, look at those big stars on TV." But if you meet a star in person, it's like a, it's like meeting a celebrity who you think is six foot seven, and you find out they're like five foot four. You're kind of like, oh, the TV made you look a little taller, you know, and with Black Cowboys, it's the same idea, you know, like if people have never seen Black Cowboys, um, except on Django Unchained or Hateful Eight or The Blazing Saddles or Buck yeah. and the Preacher or Posse, Mario Van Peebles, uh, they um, they wouldn't think they existed. But it's, a, it's one of those things, it's about changing the lens just a little bit so you can see it, you know, and I think it... This is the time when you can really celebrate this stuff. Because I don't think, again, I don't think people fully could have comprehended what the implications of something like black Western culture as, a, as an idea and as a phenomenon means to so many people. Do you find it's a bit uncomfortable how uniformly white American folk music festivals and, and this scene is? Or do you think there is a way to bring it to a more diverse audience? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't blame anybody for uh, doing festivals and going to festivals and enjoying music. I don't blame them for that, but there can always be room for an improvement. And then a lot of my career has been trying to uh, create a space and a caveat so that others can be involved. And that's really where my career started. Because being a big fan of all this music coming into it, when I, I decided to become a professional musician, when I realized that I could expand the scholarship and, and create a caveat so that you could have African-American representation within uh, genres of music that uh, I would just say they maybe sidelined or sidestepped African-American participation for one reason or another. Sometimes it's malicious. Other times I think it's just people didn't even think about it. Like a lot of black string band stuff, uh, when they established Hillbilly and Race records, uh, black string bands didn't fit in either of those categories clearly. And so you have many examples of like the Mississippi Sheiks having songs that sounded more hillbilly in the hillbilly catalog while their blues songs like Sitting on Top of the World sat in the blues catalog or the race records catalog. So you have... You have uh, the the two genres always uh, bickering and fighting anyway, and and then Jimmy Rogers, if you even want to muddy the water some more, he has these records with Louisville Jug Band and Clifford Hayes and Earl McDonald, as well as Louis Armstrong, yeah. as experimentation into Jimmy Rogers played with Louis Armstrong. Yeah, he has a, a the one. Um, Define that. I got the. The, it, it's the Great Blue Yodel, I think, number five. The one that says, I got my name on the back of my shirt. I'm a two-time and rounder and I don't have to work. That uh, that song is, uh, it's Louis Armstrong and Lil Hart and Armstrong hmm. playing behind him. He also has um, a Hawaiian player on one of his his recordings. I mean, they, they just experimented with all sorts of stuff. So the, the foundation of country music has... Uh, reverberations of ideas of uh, African-Americans and cowboys shifting back and forth uh, even on Black Cowboys my album I put a Roy Cuff number on there and we tried to create a, a vibe that was somewhat Tex-Mex you know in, in a certain way it would uh, be silly of me not to mention a certain <laughs> situation that's happening right now with this Lil Nas X Old Town Road is it a controversy is it a a, a global music musical misunderstanding is it like why do you even <laughs> describe this Tell me about this uh, Old Town Road controversy or whatever is happening right now. With that. Well, well, first I'll, I'll I'll explain the situation just a little bit for folks listening. So there's a rapper by the name of Lil Nas X, and he put a little challenge out because uh, like well, a couple years ago they had like the ALS challenge with the the water bucket where everybody threw mm -hmm. you know there was a million videos of everybody throwing water on themselves to to uh, help support a, a ALS research. And so he did a version of that saying, hey, do the Black Cowboy Challenge. And so basically you'd have a video where you were standing there, you'd jump, and then boom, you turn into a black cowboy doing the camera trick where your clothes change into cowboy totally clothes. Totally missed that. And so this was on a, an app for kids called TikTok. Okay. And so this thing became so popular on this app that 
whatever machine that calculates for Billboard shot this thing straight to the top of the country charts because it said Cowboys in it. Boom. <laughs> Goes right to the charts. And um, I saw that morning that it came out. And, uh, yeah, so basically a Billboard said, oh, well, what is this? Here, we'll take it off the chart. It doesn't have enough of the elements of country music in it. Let's take it off the chart. What does that even mean? I, exactly. So the outcry from this thing has been so immense because they're saying, well, why can't this kid be a country musician? you got all these other people in the country industry that have either white performers that have urban elements in their songs or the opposite side. You have people like uh, Kane Brown and Darius Rucker. So this isn't like a... It's not like it's something that we don't see in, in, like, the CMAs. They are primarily white, but you do see black people in the audiences, and that's how it's always been. It's always been a selective uh, community just because you have to come culturally from a, a certain spot if you're into country music, and a lot of times it's because you're a working-class person, and that's where you have with black folks is uh, they listen to the Grand Ole Opry because most of the time they're in the same communities as the white people listening to Grand Ole Opry, so they have an appreciation for country music. So it, this outcry is, is kind of what came to my table. Uh, I got a call from um, the Al Jazeera Plus Network, and they said, hey, well, you know, can you explain to us why black cowboys would even be a controversy? And thankfully, uh, thankfully, again, that I, I, just, I just happened to put out a Grammy-nominated record called Black Cowboys discussing the history and the context for black cowboys and black Western culture on a musical and historic level. So for me, I feel, I feel over the moon because in less than a year, I've seen manifestations of something I've been researching for the better part of a decade out there in the popular culture. Because to me, I, I mean, I, I always want to hear traditional music in some way or another, but... I can't stop. I'm not the judge and the jury. So if this kid puts it out and then Billy Ray Cyrus jumped in between the time I interviewed and then when I did uh, the article for Rolling Stone in which they asked me to be a, 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 to comment again. So from that 10 hours, it then turned into a country music song with the, the contributions of Billy Ray Cyrus in the style of like Jimmy Rogers working with. Louis Armstrong or whatnot in just the cor course of several hours, and I think the remix sounds sounds great. Again, I I'm a big fan of traditional music, so I want that. I want I want Hank all the time in terms of or uh, Charlie Pride or I want that traditional style. But the fact that it's become the number one and number two song on the charts, because usually if a, if an artist has a one and two on the chart, it's two different songs. Yeah, you know. But to have the original and the remixed version following each other on the charts that's a it's an amazing phenomenon even beyond just country music or hip-hop but just as a general pop music phenomenon yeah I, I mean to me it's again it's about it's about the outcry to me I think that Billboard I think they thought it, they thought it was a clerical error and then pulled it off and then they put it back real <laughs> fast when they found the outcry was like what are you guys doing you know yeah. and uh, but I think uh, it's it's interesting the outcry though that means that a community, or an ideal is so underrepresented and starved mm. that when you place it in front of people and then take it away, they, they can't help but like have a big outcry for it. And that's the part of the reason I made my album Black Cowboys was so that there would be a book and a CD that could just give you the basics on what black cowboy and black Western culture could be. And so it's interesting. Again, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, seen, it's interesting to see the other side of the coin with popular culture manifesting itself. Because Western culture is like that too, where you have uh, Marty Robbins' Gunfighter Ballads and, and Trail Songs, which is a quintessential album, but it's a pop record. Um, but it has some beautiful songs, some beautiful songwriting, and it references Western... Uh, musical stylings. I mean, who who couldn't who who wouldn't think El Paso is like a traditional, authentic Western song uh, when they hear that beautiful guitar solo, even though it's done by you know a beautiful uh, studio musician. But uh, it's still. I remember beautiful. one of the one of the vinyls that was was hanging around my house growing up was Ray Charles. You know, sort of country song. What was it called? Oh, yeah. like, modern, modern sounds and country music. Yeah. And see, he went the exact opposite with it, where he said, "I'm from Albany, Georgia. I've uh, I've grown up with uh, country and western music all of my life, and now I'm going to refashion it in the the style of jazz and and rhythm and blues that I'm creating in my 
other work. And it was his first uh, it was his first major label album on ABC. So he was at on Atlantic doing R&B mm-hmm. and just uh, and and great records in on Atlantic, but his first step was going into country and western music and that allowed him to have a caveat into opening this whole idea up of what how should people be singing it and what should they be singing and what does it mean for them to sing it? And and I think that that's something that um, Ray Charles and then uh, Solomon Burke followed directly after. Uh, there's a very funny story of um, of Solomon Burke meeting Gene Autry. So he, the first uh, record that Solomon Burke really hit big with was a song called "Just Out of Reach of My Two Empty Arms," which was a song. Just out of reach of my two empty yeah. You know, and so that was on four, that was on uh, Star Day Records, which was a huge Nashville record label. And so Solomon Burke recorded it, and um, then because of the publishing, he had to go back to Four Star Records, which was the publishing company owned by Gene Autry. So he had to go visit Gene Autry at his office and get approval to uh, to license out just out of my reach of my two empty arms. And Solomon Burke had been such a big fan of Gene Autry. That's part of the reason why he, um, I read an interview with him, he said that's why he enunciates so well. When he used to hear Gene Autry, he would mimic his enunciation. And that's something that really sets Solomon Burke apart from a lot of soul singers. It's really clear enunciation, mm-hmm. even when he's flying all over the place with his, uh, the runs vocally, he has a very clear enunciation. So he got to meet his hero to get approval on this song, which became his first hit. Of course, they wanted to get him back into R&B, so the next hit they put out was Cry to Me. Mm. So then they they put him back into a conventional R&B space. If you could have access to the cylinder of music that goes out into space, (laughs) because they do this every, what, 10 years? Mm -hmm. They send this disc into the stratosphere in case aliens or something are listening or want to know about the human race. What five songs would you put on there to sort of tell people about this country specifically? Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one because one of them is one of the ones they already put on the golden record, which is uh, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson. So they did that. But I'm going to pick some other ones. Let me think. Okay, if I was to do Black Cowboys, I would put the field recording of Moses Clear Rock Platt singing the old Chisholm Trail, which I covered on my record. But... When I heard that recording, I understood what Black Cowboys meant by the beyond just the words, but there was something mm. in that recording. So there's that one. Um, I would uh, let me think, let me get deep into it here and think about which ones would be real into it. I would do uh, "Moaning at Midnight" by Helen Wolf. If I were to do some straight hillbilly music, I would uh, pick. Um, the Love Sick Blues by Hank Williams. If I was just to throw out something very, very, very different, that's a tough one. Let me get a real. Let me get picks. I'm gonna pick. <laughs> I want to pick something real, real different. Real. To think. Let me think on something real different that I could put out there. Because again, you you want people in outer space to have their minds blown in a certain way. Let me come back to that that really crazy one. Uh, let me think, because uh, I want I would love to get some jazz out there. I probably would would get um, the West End Blues by Louis Armstrong and the Hot Seven. Let's see, something real different though, real different. <laughs> What's something that's gonna just knock that would just knock their heads off? I Tell would... us about your civilization mm. in musical form. <laughs> thank you, thank you for the cue on that one. <laughs> You know, I would see. I would send them something like a Rashad Roland Kirk or something like mm. that. I'd send them uh, if I want something real different. Maybe Soul Sacrifice by Santana or something mm. like that. That's mm. a, but, but the pulsing rhythms of of uh, of Earth and of uh, of the North American continent, the United States, the, the Southern music. That was that'd be what I'd want to convey to them because that's something you can feel. You you. Uh, Notes and, and melodies can, can be interpreted, but mm. a rhythm and feel can't can be taken away. Hey, it's Zach here. You might notice that this episode doesn't seem to be quite done yet. And you're right. 
I'm up here in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and as I was listening to the episode, I had the feeling that Dom had too much important stuff to say to cut this up in a million pieces. So we're going to give you the second half of this episode in a few days. We're going to learn more about how Dom helped create the black string band of our generation, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And as a one-man band, he will show us all the tricks in his bag, including how to play the bones and the spoons. We will also be doing my favorite segment on Show on the Road, Call Mom, because us touring musicians don't talk to our moms enough, and Dom's mom is the sweetest. So stick around, lots more to come. But wait, before we go, we're going to give you a song from Dom's Grammy-nominated album, Black Cowboys. So damn.